Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm Sarah. This is my husband, Phil. Um, we have four kids. I think a picture of them is going to come up, if I believe rightly. Maybe. Yes. So we have four kids. Um, the eldest is 22. <laughs> the youngest is 15. This was a picture. This is a picture, actually, at Phil's dad's wedding. Phil's dad was 89 and got remarried last year. Um, and this was a picture at their at his wedding, so which was just wonderful. Um, they're Jacob, Indiana, Joel, and Ben, and they're, they're wonderful. Um, and just over a bit more about us, really, about a year and a half ago, we moved um, to Rotterdam. Previous to that, we'd lived in London for approaching 30 years, and we'd been at a church called King's Church London, which is like a large multi-site church in southeast London. And both of us had worked for the church um, when we lived there. And then in September of 2019, um, God started speaking to us about leaving Kings. And um, that was a really big deal for us. We've been in London for 30 years. It's where our kids are born. It's where our friends were. It's where our community was. It's where our home was. We were really invested. We were, our roots had gone deep. And then God started to like uproot us. Um, and we spent a year praying about whether it was right to leave. And then early in July 22, God had spoken to us and we were like, okay, God, we know you want us to leave. At that point, we had absolutely no idea what that meant. And then we spent the best part of the next year asking God um, where he'd want us. And basically, there was quite a lot of pressure around that because one of our kids, Joel, he needed to start sick form in the September for A-levels. So we needed, we were in July, we had to the next September, we needed God to speak. Um, the end of the story, I mean, Phil will tell you more about the story later on this evening. But the end of the story is that in um, June of 21, we went to visit Rotterdam. God spoke to us super clearly. And so at the beginning of July, we decided that being obedient to God was the best thing to do. And three months later, me and the two boys moved to Rotterdam. Sorry, Phil's telling me it was two months later. So we decided to go two months later. We were in Rotterdam, and Phil joined us at the end of the month. So over the next two days, we're going to tell you a bit about that journey, about things we learn. So Phil will be looking tonight about how God speaks, and then tomorrow we're going to be looking at surrender and, and like what God does through surrender. Um, when Phil and I were first married... Um, Phil had a mini Clubman car, which was hand-painted a beautiful shade of snot green. Um, and it was affectionately called the slug. But because I was utterly and totally besotted with Phil, I really didn't mind about the car. I would even, on rainy days, it didn't have an aerial, I, I would hold the coat hanger out of the window so that he could listen to Liverpool, the best football team, or, or any football team. Um, and what we discovered is that when we went in journeys on the slug, we had a very, very different approach to getting to the destination. Phil would employ his Jedi mind powers to sense his way to where we were going. So say, for example, we were going to Eastbourne, he would go, I've been there before, I'll start off in that direction, and when we'd get to the outskirts of Eastbourne, I'd discover he has absolutely no idea how to actually get where we're going. Um, 
I was quite different. I would want to know not only the direction, I would want to know how do we actually get to the destination, the actual house or church or wherever we were going. And I think when it came to leaving Kings, I had a really similar approach. My approach was ask God if it was right to leave, leave well, ask God where to go, go there. It was quite simple. It was pretty direct. And, but what I discovered pretty quickly is that God had a totally different plan. You know the app Waze? He wasn't using that. Okay, he did not take us the most direct route. His route was more of like the one to get here, the kind of windy route with detours. And one thing was totally for sure, that he was not in a rush. There were several occasions in the slug where we drove to Cornwall. I think the maximum speed of the slug was about 40 miles per hour. We lived in southeast London. It was a really, really long journey going... (laughs) (laughs) It (laughs) It took a long time. And slow journeys can be really frustrating, can't they? When they really say, I don't know how you felt trying to, if you were on the coach trying to get out of Edinburgh yesterday. Um, but you know, on these occasions, I didn't mind going slow. Because Phil and I were getting to know each other. We would talk, we'd listen to music, I'd hold the aerial out the window. We'd have long conversations, we'd talk about life. I was falling in love with him and I didn't mind that the journey was slow. And as I look back on our journey to Rotterdam... I am so grateful that the journey was slow because actually what I discovered is that I fell in love with him and it gave me time to fall in love with him. And I'm going to share some of that journey with you today. But before I do that, um, Esther's just going to come up and I've asked her just to pray for us as we look at the word of God together. Thank you, Esther. Oh yes, Father, we just worship you and praise you today. Thank you that before the beginning of time, you had a plan and a purpose for King's Church to come here and worship you and get to know you deeper. Father, thank you for your servant, um, Sarah, who you sent to serve us this week. I please pray as she speaks that you'll just give her more of your Holy Spirit and more of your wisdom as she says the words. And I just please pray, Lord, as we hear the word this weekend, that it won't be a seed that is scattered by the payside, but it'll be a seed that is planted in a fertile soil that will multiply um, 50 and 100 fold, Lord Jesus. Um, amen. So in preparation um, for today, I, um, I was drawn to 1 Samuel. Um, so if you have a Bible, feel free um, to turn there. We're going to be looking at chapter 1 together, although I'm mainly actually going to be looking at the message version because I just found it particularly helpful, but you may still want to turn to 1 Samuel in your Bible if you haven't got a message version. But in 1 Samuel, we meet this um, wonderful lady called Hannah. Um, And at the start of 1 Samuel, we see that Hannah was married to a a man called Elkanah, and he had two wives, Hannah and I think it's Paniah. I don't know how you pronounce her name. But Paniah had children, and Hannah didn't have any children. And it says that how year after year they went to this place called Shiloh to worship and offer sacrifices to God. And it it tells us that Hannah was really loved by her husband, but how the other wife used to taunt her that she couldn't have children. And we're going to pick up and read together um, from verse 8. I think it should be on the screen behind as well. Her husband Elkanah said, Oh, Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Why are you so upset? Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? So Hannah ate 
and she pulled herself together and she slipped away quietly and entered the sanctuary. The priest Eli was on duty at the entrance of God's temple in the customary seat. Crushed in soul, Hannah prayed to God and cried and cried inconsolably. Then she made a vow. Oh God of the angel armies, if you'll take a good hard look at my pain, if you'll quit neglecting me and go into action for me by giving me a son, I'll give him completely unreservedly to you. I'll set him apart for a life of holy discipline. It so happened that as she continued in prayer before God, Eli was watching her closely. Hannah was praying in her heart silently. Her lips moved, but no sound was heard. Eli jumped to the conclusion that she was drunk. He approached her and said, You're drunk. How long do you plan to keep this up? Sober up, woman. Hannah said, Oh, no, sir, please. I'm a woman brokenhearted. I've not been drinking, not a drop of wine or beer. The only thing I've been pouring out is my heart. Pouring it out to God. Don't for a minute think I'm a bad woman. It's because I'm so desperately unhappy and in such pain that I've stayed here so long. Eli answered her, go in peace. May the God of Israel give you what you have asked of him. Think well of me and pray for me, she said, and went her way. Then she ate heartily, her face radiant. Up before dawn, they worshipped God and returned home to Ramah. Elkanah slept with Hannah, his wife, and God began making the necessary arrangements in response to what she had asked. The, the part of Hannah's story we see here in 1 Samuel is one of pain and disappointment and grief. And this morning, I want to look at what we can learn from Hannah. And you might think, look, we're on our church weekend away. The sun is shining. We're here to have some serious fun. Why, why are we looking at pain and suffering and disappointment? And I suppose there's two reasons. One is because I felt like that's what God led me to speak on. And I just want to be obedient to him. But the other reason is because all of us in our lives will experience disappointment at some point, pain and loss to different degrees. And how we deal with that is so important. I mean, sometimes we are dropped right in the middle of pain. Like the loss and the grief is totally out of our control. It might be a loss of a job, a loss of a home. It might be the painful death of a friend or a parent or the total agony of losing a child, or like Hannah, the anguish of barrenness. It's like a pain and a grief beyond anything we can control. And other times it might be the Holy Spirit spotlights, spotlights something painful in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is described as a guide, and sometimes he just he guides us, he, he points things out in our lives. He might point out a wound that, is, that he wants to bind up, but whatever the pain, if we, if we ignore it, it's like on our journey, we can end up in a cul-de-sac. And we feel there's no escape, and it can stop us journeying with God into all that he has for us. It can stop us enjoying and living in the good of knowing him as our father and being his child. But processing our pain with God can be the birthplace that leads to freedom, and that freedom is wonderful. Before we look at Hannah, I just want to share a bit of our journey of leaving London and um, 
For me, that was quite a, a season of loss and pain and sadness. Um, for Phil and I, leaving London um, was huge. Um, we were leaving friends. We were leaving a community we felt part of. We were leaving jobs. We were leaving financial security. We were leaving a place where we were trusted and known. And we were leaving, in some ways, memories of years of enjoying living somewhere. But perhaps the hardest part was leaving family. So when we moved, we had four kids. Two of them live in the UK, and two of them came with us. Like, and moving, well, moving to another nation away from our kids was perhaps the hardest thing we've ever done. <laughs> it was really hard. But also, moving two teenage boys to another nation, going, God, can we do this to them, was really hard. <laughs> but on top of that, on our journey, um, there was other sadness that God unearthed in me. And it, to be honest, it was a detour on the journey I totally wasn't expecting. And it was right at the start of our journey in July of 2019. I'd gone to New Day with one of our sons to serve as, um, on, the, on the site. And all I can describe is that God very lovingly, utterly and totally hijacked me. Um, I was having a conversation with, our friend, with a friend and we were just talking about, I was talking about justice and fairness in a situation and how, how important that was to me. And they, they looked at me and they said, Sarah, why is justice and fairness so important to you? And I literally, it was like, you know, you sometimes see those big foam hands people put on with the pointy finger. It was like God went boom, right into my, and I just literally welled up. And it was like, I realized it was because I felt like I had been treated unfairly and unjustly. And I hadn't even realized it. And that week, God took the lid off something I was carrying. And there was a depth of pain and sadness and hurt that I hadn't really realized was there. And it was like it was exposed and it was raw. It was like I'd put 3D glasses on and it just was jumping out in my face. I didn't quite know what to do with it, to be honest. Um, I had a really good friend who was also on the site and I, I went to chat with her and um, to, pray, to pray with her. And we found a field... <laughs> because there's not a lot of other places to go that are private and new day with however many thousand teenagers. And I started telling her a bit about how I felt. And she said to me that because we forgive from the heart, you need to know what's in your heart. So she said, I want you to imagine the person that's hurt you is right in front of you, and I want you to tell them how you feel. Don't hold back and don't make it pretty. Oof. It, was, it was ugly and snotty and raw because I, the, the effects of the pain went really deep, far deeper than I'd realized. There was grief around missed opportunities and around how different things could have looked if the pain wasn't there. And over that week at New Day, in the sadness and the pain, I discovered the beautiful gift of something called lament. And the journey of lament is something that I spent the next year or two walking through, and that's what I want us to look at today, the journey of lament. Lament is the gap between pain and promise. And there's, I meant to bring a book with me, I've, I've left it in the chalet, but there's a guy called Mark V. It's not that we're on first name terms, it's just that I cannot pronounce his surname. But he says this, he says, 
Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Lament is a gift to us, and the Bible is totally full of it. Of the 150 psalms, 59 are psalms of lament. That's the biggest genre, lament. And the Bible shows us that lament is a journey through pain and disappointment. So rather than burying our pain, ignoring our pain, or dismissing it because we think, ah, well, my disappointment and pain isn't as bad as someone else's, I believe God wants us to learn how to go on a journey of lament. So let's, let's look a bit at Hannah together and see what we can learn from her. So in verse 7, it says this, that every time Hannah went to the sanctuary of God, she was reduced to tears. She had no appetite. She was crushed in soul. She cried inconsolably. And later, Hannah says to Eli, it's because I'm so un- desperately unhappy in such pain that I've stayed here in the sanctuary so long. So the first thing I think we can learn from Hannah is that in her pain, she turned to God. I wonder, I wonder which way you turn when you're in pain, when you're disappointed. I wonder, do you turn away from God? Perhaps you've walked with pain and disappointment with God that you just turn away. You might be here in the room today, but there's, in your heart you've turned away, there's a barrier. Or maybe you're worried that if you actually let the pain out, it's so raw and untamed that you, you're almost slightly scared of what that might look like. Or maybe you just turn inwards going, do you know, it's okay, I'll, I'll get through this. I, I need to be strong for everyone else, so I'll, it's okay, I'll just keep going. Or, or do you, like Hannah, turn to God in your pain and sit with God in your pain. As you can see, we have four children. When they were younger, if they were upset and sad and they came to us, what we didn't do as parents was like, come back when you've sorted yourself out. No, as a parent, what you do, you scoop them up, don't you, into your arms. You console them, you welcome them. And the Bible is so clear that God wants us to turn to him, to come to him to the one himself who it describes as a man of suffering and familiar with pain. That man says, come to me. He says it again and again. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, I've actually got it up in our lounge back at home, is a verse from the story of the prodigal son. Now the son had gone off. He'd done his own thing. It hadn't gone well. He was full of shame and sadness. And it, it describes how probably in his desperation, he starts walking back to his father. And this is what it says in Luke 15, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him. Isn't that precious? When we're a long way off, when we're in our disappointment, in our grief, we have a father who turns and runs to us, full of compassion, ready to embrace. And you see in the Bible, don't you, like God's heart for the widows, for the orphans, his desire to care, to come close to those who might feel broken. When we're in pain, the invitation is, 
and it always has been, and it always will be to come and to know his embrace. You might think, I've come before. I'm so done with carrying this pain, and surely God's done with it as well. Maybe you feel like that today. I want to encourage you to keep coming. My sadness and the effects of it took a long time to walk through. At times, I'd say to Phil, I'd say, I'm so bored with the amount of emotional energy it takes to deal with my own grief and pain. I'm bored of it. Sometimes, like the psalmist in Psalm 77, it feels like our souls refuse to be comforted. But I think, again, if we look at Hannah, there's things we can learn from her. In Hannah's story, it says, year after year, they went to the sanctuary. She had years of being one of two wives, one of who had kids and one didn't, of carrying her grief to the sanctuary where she saw God. She then says, isn't it, I've stayed in the sanctuary so long because I'm in such pain. She lingered with God in her pain. She kept turning, and I want to encourage you, if you have disappointment or pain or loss, to keep turning, to keep coming. The journey of lament isn't always quick, but it says he walks with us through the valley, and he wants us to keep turning to him. If we look back at Hannah, it says when she goes into the temple, she made a vow to God. And right at the start, she says, oh, God of the angel armies. So right at the start, she acknowledges all of his power and all of his strength. And perhaps what you'd expect to see next is her worshipping and going, oh, God, I trust you. But actually, that's not what we see. In the NIV, it says, Lord Almighty, If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget me. Or in the message, oh God of angel armies, if you'll take a good hard look at my pain. If you'll quit neglecting me and go into action for me. What we see is an honesty with God about how she feels. She feels neglected, forgotten, like her pain isn't seen. And actually, compared to other people in the Bible, Hannah's quite tame in her honesty. Let me read you a bit from... Psalm 77, where we see a guy called Asaph being honest with God. This is what he says. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. Will you, the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? It's pretty honest, isn't it? I think as Christians, the temptation be that we can be in pain, we can turn, and then we can go, but God is good, so I have got to have faith. But I think there's a really important step we sometimes miss. And I think that's a step of being honest with God about our pain, about our emotions. Jen helpfully said earlier, didn't she, that we don't want to be governed by our emotions. But I think 
we can learn from the Psalms that it's important for our emotions to be expressed and not dismissed as sinful or invalid. In our season of leaving, I had lots of questions. Like, like God, why, why did you allow this pain to happen? Why do I have to give so much energy to untangling it? I was disappointed with a person, I was disappointed with myself, and I was disappointed with God. And over time, I realized I didn't have to hide any of that from God. My friend who sat with me in the field really helped me to realize I could be totally honest with him. Because actually, he already knows everything in my heart, already. And even though he knows it all, he still says, come. And I think it's because he wants a relationship with me. He wants me to know him and he wants to know about my sadness. He wants to know what's in my heart. With Hannah, we see that she came with a, there was a real depth of emotion when she came. It says that she wept. There was deep anguish, bitter weeping. And I did a lot of crying in this season and a fair amount of that was on my own. Some of it was with others. There was a lot of it in worship. There were moments of no words and there were deep sobs. Now, some of you in your cultural background, you're pretty comfortable with tears. There's, there's often public wailing over grief. I think in the West, we're often not so comfortable with public grief. I don't even think we're that comfortable always with sharing private grief. I think we can sometimes think crying is a weakness, that, oh, they're a bit emotional. But I think in the West, we have a lot to learn from other cultures about expressing pain. And I think tears are a gift. And I think they can be a really part of, helpful part of our healing. And I think God's okay with them. He's, o- he's okay with seeing our tears, our pain, our grief. Okay, let's look back at Hannah. Let's see what the next step after, after she turned, after she was honest, what was the next step we saw? That's what it says. After Hannah had been in the temple and made her vow, Eli came to her assuming she was drunk. When he realized she wasn't, he said to her, go in peace and may the God of Israel give you what you've asked him. And she says, think well of me and pray for me. And she went her way and then she ate heartily, her face radiant. In verse 19, up before dawn, they worshipped God and returned home. When I read this, I was really struck how Nothing had changed, but everything had changed. So she was barren. When she left the temple, she was still barren. Nothing had changed, but everything had changed. Um, Mark V, my mate, in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, describes, says that honest complaint is the turning point in lament. And he says this, Lament invites us to turn our gaze from the rubble of life to the redeemer of every hurt. It calls us to turn towards promise while still in pain. Once we had decided to leave, we were asking God where he wanted us to be. And we had a real time pressure on this because of our son starting like his A-levels. But there was absolutely nothing opening up. And we were in the middle of COVID and lockdown. We were homeschooling, working, and trying to process all that God was doing. I realized that I needed some time on my own, which in COVID lockdown was quite hard. But what I was allowed to do 
was go to the cafe around the corner and get a takeaway coffee and go and sit in my car. So at the end of each day, I'd leave Phil with the kids. I'd go and get the coffee and I'd go and sit in, I think it was like February in the freezing cold in the car. The first time I did this, I left the heating on and then had a flat battery so Phil had to come and rescue me. Um, um, I'd sit in the car and I'd ask God to speak. I'd, I did a lot of crying in that car and the not knowing and in the sadness of laying things down and in, I would ask questions and I would ask God, would you move? Would you reveal? Would you show us? And I would sing. And what happened was my why questions changed to who questions. My why is this going on? Why haven't you shown us? Turned to who God was. And singing anchored my heart to truth. So I'd, I'd sing, <laughs> I'd sing, do you know the song Gyra? The map, it says, doesn't it? It says, if he dresses the lilies with beauty and splendor, how much more will he clothe you? And if he watches over every sparrow, how much more does he love you? And I would sing that until my heart started to actually believe it. Like that he knew every detail. Like we knew none of the details. Like he did not reveal to us where we were going until two months before we needed to be there. So there was a long time of sitting in the unknown and singing anchored my heart to who he was. So the why questions became who questions. You are faithful, you are good. And I'd sing, look, Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. Like, I would sing it until my heart went, I'm on a rock, I'm safe, I don't know. And it feels like there are waves coming, but I'm on a rock. Even this morning, <laughs> I walked, I think it was Luke told me that if you walk that way, there's these bluebell woods. And actually, one of the things this last couple of months I've really missed is bluebell woods, because right near where we lived in London were the most beautiful, stunning bluebell woods. And they're not in the Netherlands. I haven't found any. I walked into the woods, and I just had this like grief of our move again. Like, it felt familiar. It felt like home. And knowing that our daughter is about a two-hour drive in some direction from here, but we're not going to see her, was like, oh, God, this has been costly. Hmm. But lament is a song you sing, believing a God who answers and restores, a God who is faithful. And I think my, what I discovered is my questions are rather becoming a barrier became a vehicle that drew me closer to Jesus, where I saw more of who he was. So in our journey, when I was sitting in that car, even though nothing had changed, everything changed, because I saw who he was and that he was faithful. As I look back on our journey of lament, a journey of turning, of honest complaint and questioning and trusting, I am so grateful because on this long, slow journey with detours, I fell more in love with him. Like I had before, a few years ago, I, I used to question, and I think for them, I would sometimes talk to Phil about it. What does it mean? Like people saying they love Jesus. So I feel like I'm really grateful for him. But when people say they love him, I don't quite understand what that means. And I think God took me on this long journey because he wanted me to fall in love with him. And I've found him as a friend, and I love him. 
I love hanging out with him. I love time with him. I love his kindness, his goodness. I'm not just grateful for what he's done. I'm grateful for who he is. I'm grateful that he calls me friend. And my prayers in pain have led to a confident trust that his grasp never falters and he'll never let me go. We had a season last year where I suddenly, I went to the optician and they told me I had a problem with my eye. Um, They told me to go to my GP. I went to the GP and they, um, they referred me to the hospital and they said that, um, I said, oh, how long till I'm seen? And I'm like, oh, well, if it's not important, maybe two or three days. And I think this was a bit lost in translation, but they said, if it's life-threatening, you're here really quickly. Well, we got a phone call within an hour or two um, that I needed to go to the hospital. We'd had a friend who'd had problems with their eye, and their son had had a brain tumour. So we had actually three or four days of being in the Netherlands not knowing if I had a brain tumour. <laughs> but I'd learned that God is faithful, and it was hard, they were hard times, but we'd learned that we're on a rock and we have a God who is good. It turns out I didn't have a tumour, but I did have a hole in my retina and I needed surgery. Um, meant we lost our whole family holiday and we had to stay in the Netherlands. But it was like, it was like God had shown me that he was faithful and it, it kind of anchored my heart. He'd taken me through something which meant I had a confident trust in who he was, that it was his idea that we moved to the Netherlands. It was his plan and his plans are good. And that he is faithful. And I'm also really grateful to God because as I poured my heart out to him, he did a wonderful healing work for the wounds in my heart. So for a long time, I'd forgiven the person who'd hurt me, but I was still hurt. There were still wounds. And there was a season of asking God, can you heal the wounds? And he does. He heals wounds. He's really good at it. So I want to encourage you, if you're walking through, if you have disappointment or pain or grief, be brave and turn to him. Be honest with him. Trust him. It can feel, lament can feel really risky and exposing. But you know, there's something far, far worse than lament. And that's if we turn away and we harden our hearts and we're angry and then we get into despair. Mark describes despair like this. Despair lives under the hopeless resignation that God doesn't care, he doesn't hear, and nothing is ever going to change. But lament directs our emotions to hope, to the one who says, come, I want to listen to you, I want to know you, I want you to know who I am, and I want to comfort your souls.